When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Hi, New I'm Books Annie Network. Burke, and this is New Books in Film. In Archive Fever, Jacques Derrida writes, quote, the archive is never closed. It opens out of the future, unquote. Was he talking about the cultural forgetting and archival rediscovery of cinema's original unruly subversive women? I mean, no, not on purpose, but he might as well have been. And luckily, that's just what my three guests will be discussing today. I have with me today uh, the co-curators of the four-disc DVD box set Cinema's First Nasty Women, which will be released by Kino Lorber in December of this year. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi. Hi. I'm Maggie Hennefeld. I'm Laura Horak. And I'm Elif Rongen-Kainakche. Okay, so Maggie is uh, the Associate Professor of Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature and the McKnight Presidential Fellow at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. She is uh, the author of Specters of Slapstick and Silent Film Comedians, uh, co-editor of the journal Cultural Critique, and the co-editor of two volumes, Unwatchable and Abjection Incorporated, Mediating the Politics of Pleasure and Violence. Um Laura is an associate professor of film studies at Carleton University and director of the Transgender Media Lab. Uh, she's author of Girls Will Be Boys, Cross-Dressing Women, Lesbians, and American Cinema, and co-editor of Silent Cinema and the Politics of Space, um, also Unwatchable, with Maggie, uh, a special issue of Somatechnics on trans cinematic bodies, and an in focus section of the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies on transing cinema and media studies. Um, and Alif is the curator of silent film at I Film Museum, the National Film Archive of the Netherlands. Graduated from the University of Amsterdam, film and TV studies in 1997, and employed since 1999 at I. She has worked on the discovery, restoration, and presentation of many presumed lost films. She's responsible for the preservation and presentation of I's silent film holdings, including, uh, among others, the Desmet Collection and the Munoscope and Biograph Collection. Well, you're very accomplished. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining. No. Uh, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Uh, this has been a very highly anticipated project for a very long time, both for scholars of early cinema and also feminist media sort of up into the present. So really, I'm, I'm elder millennial stoked. I'm very excited uh, to talk to you. But let's talk about how did this project originate? And how did you come together to work on it? Maggie, you want to go first? How, how far back do we want to go? Uh, in a sense, it originated out of initially Laura's and my disserta- dissertation research. I was writing about slapstick comedians and early silent cinema. Laura was researching female-to-male cross-dressing in American silent cinema. And um, Alif, as just an incredibly generous superstar archivist, helped us a lot in terms of giving us access to the amazing films and the um, I collection. 
And then, yeah, Laura and I collaborated on a screening in Toronto in 2014, but the project really launched with a program of five screenings at the Pordenone Giornate del Cinema Muto Silent Film Festival in Italy. And that was really the genesis of Nasty Women because we were curating this program right after the 2016 election when Nasty Women was becoming this kind of global feminist rallying cry. And we were seeing so many glimmers of nasty women in the archive. And uh, we were really inspired by Kino Lorber's previous box set on um, early women filmmakers and early African-American films. And so when we saw those, we said, we have to do something like that uh, to get these films you know, we've, we've been showing them at festivals, we write about them in our research, but like to get them out to students and the public and activists and the, um, you know, the broader world. And so we talked to Shelley Stamp, who had uh, worked with Kino on the uh, Early Women Filmmakers set to, to figure out how to do this. And so she connected us with Brett Wood at Kino. Also, when Maggie and I were thinking about what to do, we knew we couldn't do this without Elif, who had been so helpful to throughout the years um, and really um, knew so much about the forgotten women comedians of um, especially early European cinema and also uh, was friends with so many archivists who were essential to getting this project done. Yeah, for me, it felt very organic in a way, because like Laura is saying, uh, our co collection policy is always, you know, focused on these forgotten women, and uh, we try to find their films and so on, and show their films. So that is also why we could help, uh, you know, both Maggie, Laura, and numerous others, of course, uh, you know, with uh, finding these films that nobody really else cares about. And so for me, yeah, it was kind of a seamless thing to go on board with this uh, project because it's so much adheres to what we believe anyway and what we try to do so uh, it's and in fact i see it as a great opportunity to you know put together a compilation of these films that are hard otherwise to show because people you know don't know the titles they don't know the actresses and so on it's hard to say how oh, we are doing a retrospective of this or that person whereas this is a great opportunity yeah, of the 99 films in the collection, over 40 come from I, almost half, and they all have Dutch intertitles. But now all of these Dutch titles have English, French, and Spanish translations, so they're just so much more accessible, even though some that I had uploaded onto their YouTube channel. Now you can read the intertitles in three other languages than Dutch. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's a great uh, way for us to give access to our material, but also not to forget ones that we have up and running on YouTube. They also don't have music and, uh, you know, to put something on DVD is always great because you get a recorded music score. Well, I mean, something that's so exciting about the project is it feels like it is both sort of an archival um collection of all of these rare things but there is a really creative component to the way that you curated it and sort of I think I imagine sharpen the quality in many ways it looks like really vivid and, and crisp the images there's new music so there is like a very sort of inter there's a creative intervention component um that speaks to all of your curatorial sort of input and imagination um these films feel like they belong together, but that is by, I think, sort of intellectual ingenuity rather than it all sort of 
just like living in the same box at any one museum. Uh, so I want to talk about the wide range of materials that you brought together. Uh, it covers about 30 years of film history, uh, cuts across periodizations. If we talk about sort of the cinema of attractions of early film and then what Tom Gunning refers to from cinema of attractions to cinema of narrative integration. So storytelling films, trick films, it's got, got it all, uh, but also national film industries and different languages. Uh, and even the stories and the characters are different. Some heroines, some of them are sort of heroines, anti-heroines, uh, housemaids, spies, um, indigenous royalty. So um, since there's such a wide range of content here, how did you decide what constitutes a nasty woman film? Uh, I can, you can Laura, go, you go. I'll just say quickly, uh, to quote the great Justice Potter from 1964 in reference to obscenity, <laughs> you know, I know it when I see it. I think we all have different sort of um, gut instincts in terms of what makes for a nasty woman. For me, it's a slapstick hellraiser, a woman breaking all of the dishes and just destroying everything, letting loose as a kind of gesture of protest. And my contributions to the collection, I think, are very anchored in the cinema of attractions, pre-narrative, exhibitionist, all about, um, you know, what, 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 what's possible to happen in front of the camera, um, especially as it converges with the escalation of feminist politics, feminist movements in the early 20th century. Uh, so in one of the earliest films in the collection, um, uh, the Dairy Maid's Revenge, a woman is, you know, a dairy maid is being harassed by a man and she responds by dumping two buckets of freshly squeezed cow's milk over his head. And that's right. That's the feminist cinema of attractions of sexual revenge comedy right there. But yeah, it's a really, really broad range of nasty women in the set. So maybe this is a good time for me to pass the talking stick. Sure. So basically, this collection brings together all of our interests in the ways that early cinema can really unsettle what we think we know about gender and sex and sexuality and feminism. Um, and so while Maggie's research focuses on these really kind of knockabout slapstick women comedians from the early um, from the earliest years of cinema, my research focuses on cross-dressed women and representations of alternate um, sexualities from these periods. And so the films from the set with cross-dressed women actually span from comedy, from knockabout comedy, to kind of genteel um, gender disguise comedies to um, to women as action heroines and as spies and as as cowboys and um, and dramas and um, tragedies and um, and so it's a huge range so these women um, who some of them are playing characters that disguise their um, gender and some of them are actually playing male roles um they're not nasty in the sort of most obvious sense that uh, you think of that comes to mind but i think they're sort of symbolically nasty in that they totally explode what was allowed for uh, people assigned female at birth at the time or at least what we assume was allowed because in fact what they show is that there was a huge range of gender expressions in popular cinema you know this is not marginal you know independent art cinema you know or something this is like the most popular films showed that 
people assigned female could have, um, you know, physical prowess, could look, um, you know, really sexy and alluring in a suit, could, um, could you know, flirt with women. Uh, there, so there was so many kind of possibilities. So uh, basically, although they're like really, the films can be really different from each other, and we really loved that variety that goes against what people think of, of as like what silent cinema was all about and what gender in silent cinema was all about. Um, I think the thing that ties them together is that it, it goes against what um, what we assume the limits were for um, for people assigned female and women in the early uh, part of the 20th century. Yeah, totally. I mean, for me too, the definition, there's no real definition, but it's like more like a feeling, like when you watch a film and you're totally surprised by what you see, uh, because it goes completely against your expectations of, uh, you know, how a female character would be represented in such a film from that time. And uh, believe it or not, I mean, 99 films is a lot, but actually we started with an even longer list. So there was also a moment of selection where we could also like ask each other, like, do you think this is, you know, surprising enough or do you think this is strong enough? And so on. So we were lucky enough also to choose a little bit. So I think that's any is why it feels a little bit like they belong together, too, because we were indeed able to select even further. Just to piggyback off that really quickly, we were also trying to avoid cliches of female nastiness from this era. So there aren't a lot of vamp films. For example, you won't find Theta Bera in the collection. But we also really, really wanted to prioritize um, rare, forgotten, unseen, and accessible films. So there are a lot of obvious candidates for cinema's first nasty women who just aren't in the collection, like Mabel Norman, for example, or Louise Fazenda or Murray Dressler are not in the collection, even though they totally fit the bill of nasty women, just because uh, more people already have access to watching their films through prior DVD collections, um, you know, you, the streaming on YouTube. And we really wanted to give pride of place to the widely forgotten and accessible and unseen. And exactly. I will just I'll just add that also uh, we were limited by what um, we could get from archives. So of course we know that uh, so much of early films were lost, maybe eighty to ninety percent. But of the ones that survived, some are in archives where, because of rights reasons or other reasons. Um, it wasn't possible to make a scan and make them commercially available. So, um, so what you're seeing is, I mean, I think an exceptional collection, but there is in fact so many more. This is really the tip of the iceberg of cinema's first nasty women. Even though it's a four disc set, we could easily have made an eight or 12 disc set if they would let us do that. <laughs> but it's something a good producer thing. would have killed us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just like Laura is saying, I think this is just scratching the surface. I mean I totally understand that for lots of archives it's not very interesting to, you know, there's really no incentive to go and restore a 10 minute film that nobody has ever heard about and you know, nobody's likely to ever ask about either. So let's hope that, you know, this DVD set will also create a different feeling around this kind of films that unfortunately go neglected a lot of the times. So, uh, yeah, that that is also, I think, uh, kind of a nice side effect, hopefully, for this kind of films. 
Well, uh, as an extension of these questions about sort of accessibility and also, I don't know, like expectation, I guess is the other word, um, you include with the with the four discs, this very robust, I mean, it's not quite a book. It's not really a pamphlet. It's kind of like (laughs) um, a scholarly novelette. I don't know. Um, You talk about particularly, I'm going to have to quote you back to yourselves, how the turn of the 20th century was fraught with intense social upheaval and cultural transformation and how these changes coincided or you could say responded to or potentially precipitated the advent of cinema. Uh, But when we talk sort of about the early early cinema sort of as a scholarly community, but also in a popular context, um, these nasty women in particular are rarely included. Um, and women that you mentioned, Maggie, like Theta Barra and um, Mabel Norman are sort of held up as, I don't want to say exceptions to the rule, but like exemplars that suggest that there were not so many of them. Um, when in fact this this collection proves that they were one of many. Um, So why are these movies not typically included in stories of 20th, the early 20th century or sort of film history slash historiography? Patriarchy. Sorry. (laughs) I had something in my throat. (laughs) I mean, you know, who's been setting... question. I'll admit it. I'll admit it. (laughs) Low-hanging fruit. I mean, who's been setting the agenda? What archivists decide? Which films to preserve? Which films to curate on DVD, in DVD collections or in archival retrospectives? Who writes the history textbooks? Like Laura said earlier, we are building on a much larger, long-standing feminist project. We're building on the work of the women film Pioneers Project. Check it out. It contains hundreds of career profiles for women who worked in every level of the silent film industry as directors, producers, writers, editors, but also as nasty women, right? That should be an occupational field for them to add to the website. And obviously connections, collections like Kino's um, First Women Filmmakers, uh, curated by Shelley Stamp. I think another aspect of why these women, why these films weren't included in even feminist histories, first of all, um, women aren't the filmmakers in um, most of the, the 99 films in this collection. We're thinking about authorship in relation to performance and political themes. So we're thinking about recuperative authorship more expansively than just like who was the director behind the camera. And also sometimes it's really ambiguous which way the joke lands, like is the the suffragette, the butt of the joke, um, or is the very image of women holding protest signs, long live the strike, down with the bosses, even if it's meant to be simultaneously mocking the suffragette movement, isn't that image liberatory into itself? So I think we're at a point now, right, in feminist politics, in um, feminist scholarship, where we, you know, we, we can live with negative images. We can um, work with archives that contain negative images and still embrace them for their redemptive and liberatory qualities. Yeah, I'll just say, oh, do you want to go, Elif? I was just going to say, I mean, in general, I think the movies were not really made to last either in this period of time, you know, in the early decades of cinema. So lots of them were just like quickly used up, uh, consumed uh, commodities kind of thing. And nobody thought of keeping them and nobody thought that they would, you know, remain. Uh, I think, however, the the problem, let's say, uh, became bigger when 
people did start to look back and write about what the early days would have been kind of thing. I mean, because they were not really basing this on anything, I'm assuming, but their own memory or, you know, what was still talked about. And in often cases, I also think women simply are just like more modest. They don't think of themselves as like oh, a great uh, performer or whatever. They're more like, oh, you know, we did some films back then. <laughs> Whereas, you know, look at all these men that we still remember, right? Not like, like you know, Chaplin and so on. They actually, they, they talked about their own career in a much big, bigger way and so on. So I think this whole myth also grew like in the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, bigger and bigger like you know all the women were negligible and they were only men kind of thing that certainly resonates i uh my book on women in early television that sense of modesty being an important part of navigating a professional environment but also when you're sort of at the start of a, a new media form whether you have a have sort of a forward-looking sense that people will want to watch this more than once or that this is not disposable. Um, I love Lucy as an example of some, a couple who, you know, Lucille Ball and, and uh, Desi Arnaz who thought maybe people will want to watch our show again. So we're going to put it on film instead of this really disposable uh, kinescope film. So that's part of why I love Lucy. Little piece of trivia is looks so much better than most fifties television shows. And one reason why it has, t- st- uh, you know, stood the test of time. So, um, yeah, this idea that that makes sense to me, <laughs> obviously. Uh, Laura, did you want to add something? Yeah, I'll just say um, th- there were women working, as Maggie said, in every level of the film industry in the early years. But already by the end of the silent era, or really in the twenties, already they started to be pushed out of those positions as the industry changed and started to be. Um, financed and therefore sort of managed by the big banks on the East Coast. And so we started to have a more traditional kind of business hierarchy compared to the sort of wilder days where anyone could um, get into the biz. And so those women who were trying to um, make their place or, or, or make sure people understood their contributions were already being forgotten and pushed out by the end of the silent era. And that just continued. And then in the early days, the way that um, films were preserved and um, talked about was if they were a great art. That's how they made the argument that cinema was worth saving, worth um, worth watching. And, uh, you know, old films were watched is if it was like had some huge artistic uh, vision, which was a kind of conservative vision also of what art could be. And so these comedies or these action films were not part of that vision, generally speaking, of what like a great art would be. So that also is why they got forgotten. They got forgotten. And I found when I started researching um, kind of queer and trans threads in early cinema, a lot of early cinema archivists and scholars knew about the cross-dressing, knew about the same-sex flirtation, but it wasn't that significant to them. And then the people for whom, you know, same-sex flirtation and alternate gender expressions was significant didn't know about the films. So this is part of what we're doing is trying to uh, connect films that show these amazing histories, show that there is so much different kinds of experimentation going on um, around feminism and gender and sexuality um, that people today, you know, young people and older people who are... um, queer and trans, who are feminist activists, um, 
let them know that there is this history and there is this popular history too, not just a kind of underground history. Uh, Laura, if I can follow up about that, I'm looking the last film in your collection, not the last in the collection, but like the latest, the most recent um, was from 1926. And so I guess I start to think about the Hollywood production code and if that had any impact on the kinds of gender and sexual representations that are in the set. And um, I guess a related question as I, I don't know too much about uh, films from abroad is were there other forms of sort of uh, policing censorship or sort of a moving away from more transgressive representations moving into the thirties out just outside your kind of yeah, area. Yeah. Um, yeah. In my book, I do go all the way into the thirties and into the production code. Um, but the set start, uh, stopped in 26, as you say. Mm-hmm. So the irony is that during the early period cross-dressed women were not seen as a problem. They were not seen in American, the reception of American films as uh, connected to deviant sexualities. The, the knockabout slapstick that Maggie studies was the problem that was seen as leading to criminality, you know, causing kids to like be violent. You know, there was all kinds of problems about that. So that is what the, the, the women's groups, the police, the, the different kinds of censorious bodies were really concerned about. They didn't actually mind the um, women playing males roles, uh, women disguising themselves as men and flirting with other women, because it was part of this long theatrical tradition uh, in Europe and the United States. And um, also, uh, there was a theatrical tradition of women playing um, both boy roles and older roles like Hamlet and that kind of thing. So um, it was seen as part of a kind of wholesome middle-class entertainment um, and was part of the uplift of cinema. Um, But ironically, perhaps in the twenties, when they started to bring in more European actors and writers and directors, and uh, there was a kind of vogue for the, the modern, the urban, the sophisticated, that's when they started to really intentionally try to um, uh, wink towards lesbianism and gay identity. So in this, these twenties films that we have, we really see that they're really intentionally playing with um queer identities, you know, as part of you're in on the joke, right? And uh, so once they did that as an intentional strategy, and they did it also in marketing um, for uh, when they came, Greta Garbo and Marlene Dietrich, it's not an accident that everyone thinks of them as lesbians. It's because they were marketed that way in advertising. Um, And so that's when the sort of cat got out of the bag and then censors and women's groups uh, started to worry like, oh no, this is corrupting, especially the youth and especially middle America. And um, so that's when they started to put into place these, um, these rules that sexual perversion and any inference of it would be forbidden. Um, I think they had already established enough codes that like it was never actually going to go away, but then it became more and more codified and less obvious. Um, So you see in some of our films, the point at which they're kind of doing it on purpose before there's the backlash um, in the early thirties where they have to, and one of the big things that happens is that um, cross-dressed women 
who were in a variety of different genres and like sometimes there was romance, sometimes there wasn't. Um, they become codified to only certain, these uh, gender disguised comedies where there's always a heterosexual romance at the end. They're always beautiful. You know, they're wearing lipstick, even though they're disguised. So it becomes like much narrower, the kinds of female masculinities that you see on screen uh, because of that backlash. Yeah. Yawn. Yeah. <laughs> but like Laura was saying, my, you know, my, my slapstick nasty women were censored long before the rise of the production code um, by, you know, morality societies, local reform groups, um, protesting, uh, rough and tumble, violent, you know, images suggestive of deviance, transgression, criminality, like Leontine, this uh, French comic film character who I'm totally obsessed with, who I'm sure we'll talk about more later. She made about 24 films and half of them were banned in the US. They aired, you know, we have English titled versions of her films because they aired in the UK, but they were banned from theaters in the US. You know, she'd electrocute police officers, set her house on fire, um, uh, try to hang her neighbor with a piece of string. She's a total miscreant. Um, but those those types of images, that the comical violence, particularly comical violence as a springboard for female movement and action and empowerment, those were particularly targeted by censors, whereas um, gender play, queer innuendo could kind of um, you know, fly under the radar. Well, I wanted to ask all of you to sort of spotlight because this is about 14 hours of... of 14 and a half. Ah, so um, people might choose to skip around in the collection. Uh, So I just wanted you to each highlight a film that you really like is very special to you. Uh, And I think you're already sort of in the midst of it, Maggie. So why don't you you tell us a little bit more about uh, one or two of your, your most prized Leontine finds. Oh my God, Leontine, Leontine. Just gonna, I'm just gonna hum her name in praise. Oh, someday we'll find her. Um, in fact, with some of the the press coverage that the collection has gotten, a woman in Minneapolis recently emailed me that she found a bunch of old photos in her attic of silent era movie stars that had belonged to her grandmother, and she was like, "But I'm not sure if your Leontine is among them." But word is spreading, right? Like she's on the back of a milk carton. Um, so of the 14 and a half hours in the collection, which of course doesn't include the original programming of documentary, short documentaries with the curators, film historians, activists, experts that you also don't want to miss when, you know, you purchase a Blu-ray copy near you, uh, Leontine guards the house is my favorite, or I I think on some level the most interesting. My favorite Leontine film probably changes every time I'm asked this question. A little bit of context. We don't know the name of the actress who played Leontine. She had her own slapstick film series that was shot in the south of France in Nice from 1910 to 1912. There are about 24 episodes made, little over half survived. They're all in the collection. This is the last one. It was released never in the U.S. It was released internationally in early February 1912, right? A couple years before the outbreak of uh, World War One, and just months before the comic production unit in Nice, Pate's uh, unit in Nice uh, closed. So it was kind of the end of an era. And in the film, Leontine is tasked by her parents with taking care of the house, um, you know, babysitting her little baby brother and their dog. 
And as happens in every Leontine episode, all hell breaks loose. She destroys everything. She simultaneously sets the house on fire and floods it, loses her baby brother and dog while playing jump rope with a little girl who then she tries to strangle with a piece of rope and places an ad in the newspaper. And basically the series ends with her house simultaneously flooded on fire and her becoming uh, warden to the next generation of misfits. There are hundreds of dogs and little babies that strangers bring into her house at the end of the film, which I think is a really appropriate way to end the series. So it's about um, slapstick as a form of catharsis amid um, a, a sense of collective bloodlust and looming apocalypse, right? We know what the temperature and boiling points were in Europe at the time. And whenever I watch Leontine's films, I always think of that um, popular internet meme with the dog whose house is on fire, you know, sipping a cup of coffee, like this is fine. Um, and, you know, like like she sets her house on fire earlier in the episode and then like 10 other things happen subsequently. And then she goes back to the kitchen and it's still on fire. So I think it's that that Leontine's films really speak to that sense of how, you know, we know the disaster is looming around us. Um, we episodically disavow it, but it's always still there, right? The house is still on fire, even if we walk into the other room and, you know, break all of the dishes. Um, so it's about how slapstick can help us envision and sustain alternative worlds, you know, amid the apocalypse. That's what Leontine's films mean to me. Not at all relevant to our current moment. Not yes. at all. No. Alif, uh, maybe you'd like to share a personal favorite. Mm, it's so hard for me. Like Maggie's saying, my favorite always changes also. On the other hand, I also have an obsession with the little Crisia and with little Crisia who was in her one series she was Cunegonde and then subsequently she also went to this and uh, did the Zoe films, very short-lived unfortunately. Uh, so Lisa Crisia, I have been researching her for a long time and it's, you know, like we're finding more and more, uh, like Maggie's saying also, so now people are also reaching out and uh, just by the way, she was also like on stage now we find like in 1908 uh, around that time also as a cross-dresser like like playing these male figures and so on on stage but on the uh, in her own films she's often a clumsy housemaid or a jealous wife so now i need to include you know a clumsy housemaid in my recommendations that says so i would say zoe alamen malheureuse is, you know where she's the prototype of clumsy uh, housemaid where she's like going to the markets but the basket doesn't have like the bottom so whatever she's putting in the mar basket is like in instantly also disposed of so all kinds of things and breaking like an uh, incredible number of dishes indeed uh, but if I were at this point to recommend one film to somebody who has not seen any of these films I would also like to suggest Sarah Duhamel because Sarah Duhamel is really, you know, one of these actresses that I have shown her films to audiences. And I mean, like many of these films I've shown to the audiences. But whenever Sarah Duhamel comes on screen, people start laughing. It's just crazy. I don't know what she had, this energy. And we have loads of Sarah Duhamel films on the <laughs> set, of course, then. But also, I think at this point, I would say Potuyar are in femme jalouse. Potuyar has a jealous wife. Now, this jealous wife is, you know, a recurring theme. And then, of course, 
the jealous wife doesn't just sit down and whine in our case you know in all the nasty women they just take action and in the case of uh, Sara Duhamel she actually starts following the husband but she puts on a disguise like she transforms herself so completely I cannot believe and this is like she becomes this gentleman who is really really nasty following the the, the husband and uh, I also find this film interesting because it has this this you know archetypal title where it's called Potuyar and Femme Jalouse so that Potuyar's wife is jealous if you would read about this in the book you would think the film is about Potuyar about the man no oh and you know how unhandy for him to have this jealous wife whereas when you watch the film the film is really showing you Sarah Duhamel the wife taking action and you know following uh, tailing this man and doing the, literally the heavy lifting I would say in this film where there are like some stunts and she's like rolling over the streets of Nice and being, you know, taken up in the air by a crane in the in the port and so on. So this is like insane. Nobody, no actress, no actor would do this kind of thing today, you know. <laughs> so so I think this one film really sums up so many elements of cross-dressing and you know the slapstick, the stunt work, and that crazy, crazy energy that just like uh, sparks off the screen when you start seeing these actresses. Well, it seems like both of you are choosing, I think, uh, really interesting examples of like women explosively leaving or being sort of removed from the domestic space, um, which I always think whenever they end with like the woman outside, like rebelling and going outside the house or leaving the kitchen, it reminds me of the women who were probably had had left their homes to go to the movies in the first place. Um, I love the ones you've chosen. Alif, I had a question about um, Petouillard, uh, oh God, French, une femme jalouse. Um, I would say edit that out, but what would you edit it with? Just more bad French. Um, I I feel like that was an, a slippery film for me because at the end, I'm still not sure if she had anything to be jealous about. And I felt like that was possibly either that the movie was making me into a nasty woman or that the silence of these films sometimes covers over what might be a little more dramatic or a little more subversive than the short can accommodate. I don't know if you had that reaction, but I still felt like at the end, a spoiler, they were, you know, she, you know, her husband figures out and she reveals herself. Her husband knows who she is and they kind of like laugh and canoodle together. But I, I was looking for a, a final title card that was like, but seriously, why were you touching her feet? I know what's up with feet in silent films, like fixing <laughs> yeah. her boot, as I recall. Yeah, but I mean, that final shot actually in that particular film, uh, I think it's important to think about these things too. When you watch the whole series, if you do, you know, if anybody is so obsessed, uh, you will find that lots of French films start and finish in a certain way. And that, that like finishing shot where we see uh, Sarah Duhamel with Paul Berto, so the actors, actress, uh, next to each other in a kind of close-up, that you have not seen in the entire film otherwise. I think this is what this was a way of finishing the films. Like like it's like instead of saying the end, it's like, oh, you know, like to the audience, this was the adventure of this week kind of thing. Because I think this is a 
kind of pre-star period or almost like transitioning to the star period where the audience starts recognizing these faces and in fact they're kind of looking forward to their next episodes and mm -hmm. uh, so this is like where we are giving you like this kind of close-up and that's in when I say this I also mean that in a way it becomes completely irrelevant what's the you know the plot was what they have been doing because we're just there to see them you know knock around in another adventure kind of thing so the what the reason is for them to like you say leave the house and start rolling around the streets is really not even that relevant as long as you know we are given the great Sarah Duhamel and Paul Berto in this case who was of course also a famous actor so that final tableau is almost like them taking their bows partially as themselves and like sort of as the characters, but we're moving away from the story or any kind of emotional resolution oh, to oh, yeah, what I, she's been doing this whole absolutely, time. Absolutely, because I mean, there are some films that start with Sarah, Ma Sarah Duhamel or even finish again, like saying to the audience, uh, bonsoir and so on, or welcome. So this is really a salutation and almost like acknowledgement of the audience uh, watching them, definitely like looking directly into the camera and therefore into the theater and saying uh, hello you know good evening yeah it i mean think of the um bandit pointing his gun at the spectator at the end of the great train robbery after his character has died within the film so the there, noel birch calls them emblematic shots they were a popular convention from around 1903 through the 19 teens but you'll find them all over the nasty women collection close-ups or medium close-ups of the lead performers um, directly addressing the spectator in front of a kind of flat or neutral background and often laughing hysterically, winking, canoodling, making faces. But like um, Alif was saying, they, they sort of bridge the gap between the world of the audience and um, the diegetic locations of the films. Um, but they're, they're not really part of the world of the film as such. Laura, what about you? What would you like to sort of triangulate this conversation with one of your favorites? Yeah, sure. One of the things we were excited about in this collection is the ability to include some Black and Indigenous women actresses who also haven't had their due. Uh, Bertha Regustus, an amazing Black comedian. Uh, Minnie Devereaux, an Indigenous comedian who was um, Ho-Chunk. And uh, she stars in a film with Fatty Arbuckle in this uh, collection. She's also in a Mabel uh, Norman film, a feature film, if you are interested. Uh, and then also Lillian St. Cyr, who was Cheyenne and Arapahoe and performed under the name Princess Redwing. And uh, the film I, I it was like such a discovery for me, and I'm so excited that we could present it. Is called The Red Girl and the Child, starring Lillian Saint Cyr, and she was amazing. She made over 70 films. She um, worked with her husband James Youngdeer, also Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, she uh, grew up uh, going to in Indian residential schools, which could be very, you know, harsh, and were really places where. Um, indigenous people were were denied their language and their culture, um, but she nevertheless became, you know, one of the world's first indigenous women superstars, and not just a film performer, but a stage performer and a regalia maker. And she was active in the American Indian movement in the 70s. She lived a really long time um, and remained committed to um, indigenous culture and arts and, um, and activism. But she plays a kick 
kick-ass heroine in this uh, this film that we included, which we actually hadn't even seen until we scanned it for this uh, film. I mean, for this project, and um, and it's in a beautiful uh, nitrate tinted nitrate print, so it's a like gorgeous condition, and it's set in the the Wild West and uh, a settler family. Um, the the man kind of um, gets he falls afoul of this bad guy and and the bad guy steals the man's uh, young child and then Lillian Saint Cyr uh, takes it upon herself to rescue the child uh, and so she disguises herself as a male cowboy she sneaks into the enemy camp she grabs the toddler out from under the sleeping noses of the enemy and then there's this long chase where she navigates this incredible uh, really challenging Western landscape in order to escape to safety. And it includes a scene, she did all her own stunts. It includes a scene where uh, there's a rope across a ravine. She has the child on her back and she goes hand over hand over the ravine, which she actually did, you know, and then she cuts the rope while the, um, the bad guys are coming after her. So they fall into the ravine. Um, And then uh, she saves the child and they all live happily ever after. So, uh, the film is part of this genre of uh, women, athletic women heroines that were set in the Wild West, uh, many of them disguised as male cowboys. Uh, but the genre is dominated by white women heroines, which was part of this American frontier mythology that um, the West could make white Americans um could make them healthy and like physically strong and dominant and that they could kind of appropriate some of the skills and physical qualities of indigenous people while taking their land, while uh, violating their treaties. While, you know, so uh, like so much of American frontier mythology and literature is about this. And so, and so are so many of these other films, but this is a film that kind of flips the script and shows um, that an actual indigenous woman played by an indigenous woman, not a white woman, you know, disguised uh, playing across racially, which was also very common in silent film, um, is is celebrated for her athleticism and prowess. And she's able to negotiate these different modern identities. She can pretend to be um, uh, a male cowboy, you know, and, and that's a successful disguise for her. So it's really a kind of thrilling change from the norm and she's just such a great actress. Um, I'll also say for folks who are going to watch it, it's also a film, though, that um, demonstrates the messiness of this archive. There is a scene in the beginning where a man in blackface is taunted by the bad guy and um, made to dance in the bar. And it's a clearly a blackface performance, like straight out of the minstrel tradition, you know, really uncomfortable to watch today. And you think, well, why, you know, why is this here? And like, do we, you know, it, it, it makes it, um, you know, this is not just a film we can celebrate, like as like, oh, an amazing film that's great and every way but it shows the complexity and you know straight up kind of racism of popular culture that we would argue is still part of popular culture today it's not like oh now we know better there's no more racism in american popular culture in fact you know we can see a line between um uh, racism and anti-blackness in popular culture today and going back to the silent period and so um 
that's one of the things we wanted to do with this set is to not whitewash um, our vision of the past, but to uh, contextualize it. And so we have um, in the uh, DVD set, we have a black and indigenous scholars and artists introducing things, uh, doing audio commentaries. And we have this amazing conversation between members of um, this anti-racist advisory group that we got together of black, indigenous and people of color, musicians and scholars um, talking about what it means to uh, program and present and um, preserve films that have, you know, sometimes really explicitly racist content like this one, and sometimes more implicitly racist content, like there's a lot of blackening gags and things. And so um, that was a big part of this project is is reckoning with um, the racism of the past in light of our, um, you know, anti-racist liberation movements today. Yeah, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll continue with that in a moment, but I, I loved Liza Black's introduction to that film she gives a lot of really i think enlightening biographical information about the star uh and her life and like how you can read that into the film um and um who else the well i would say i'm not going to go on about and on about it but one of my favorites was laughing gas and uh kyla Tompkins' sort of contextualization of that humor i think cuts across a lot of your films in terms of the films that you've chosen in terms of sort of the agency and the limits of the agency of the performer in determining the meaning. Uh, but, you know, the, what is it? The red girl and the child, that's what it's called. Uh, the red girl and the child is such a great example of like how you can't produce a whitewashed history because every sort of film contains or many films, I should say, contain strands of both, sort of like the shameful and the like extremely progressive and enlightened and, and uh, what we wish was in the past versus like maybe what was there and that they would be sort of in that. I think that The Red uh, the red Girl and the Child is a very beautiful movie. Like vis- visually, I thought it was very stunning with the tinting. It really made me think about like proto-John Ford imagery of the West, um, uh, which... I think a lot of these films are really funny. Not all of them are quite so like beautiful as that one. Some of them are more like, are just like straight black and white or the really early ones are, have very static camera, but that one was very exciting. Uh, but I honestly, I loved all of yours. I felt like at the end, I had a question about that one too, which is um, part of why the child is kidnapped is because he, his or her, his, I think father, yeah. her, I don't, don't really say. Child. We don't really the know. Child. Doesn't yeah. matter. Doesn't really matter. Father. The child yeah. father um, defends uh, the indigenous woman in a saloon context, um, and then so he sort of like, and then you know some 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 gang of guys like kidnap the kid to punish him for his uh, for his racial equality. Um, but then at the end, it seems as though like they're a family all together. This white family and um, the American Indian woman are like all a family. The the, the child is kissing that. Um, but I thought that's such a such a deeply contemporary, <laughs> very modern family. I actually had a little bit of the thought of like a polyamorous, but like also, but also an interracial family, and that that would coexist with um, sort of a minstrel show at the start is a sign of how these films are truly complicated, uh, but all need to be sort of treated in the way that you are treating them with a lot of, uh, with a lot of help from a lot of professionals. Uh, you are the biggest group I've had on the podcast, but I know I'm still not talking to the entire team 
of uh, Cinema's First Nasty Women. You worked with preservationists, you worked with producers, you worked with composers and musicians. Um, and then you have help from uh, fellow sort of scholars and historians, uh, Dr. Thompson, as I mentioned, um, Jane Gaines is in here, um, a lot more people, but I'm going to let you uh, take over for that. I wanted to sort of give you your little Oscar moment maybe to thank some people, but also to just sort of talk about what you learned from these collaborations, because as much as an academic book is also an act of collaboration, I feel like of all the guests I've had, this has probably had the most the most people working on creating a single cultural object that can be purchased online or in some some stores. We will talk about that too. I mean, this this project has just gotten so much bigger than we ever initially envisioned it, and it's still expanding. We're still growing. Watch out. Um, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who contributed, right? Of the, All of the 99 films have original musical scores. Um, over 40 different composers uh, uh, created this music, and, and hundreds of musicians performed it. Uh, we worked with um, a musical director, uh, Dana Reason, who also composed uh, scores for a couple films in the collection, including one of our two features, The, the Snowbird. Um, yeah, audio commentary tracks. I mean, we mentioned, you mentioned Liza Black, a Cherokee film historian who wrote a brilliant book called Picturing Indians. Uh, she recorded a video introduction for The Red Girl and the Child and also wrote two spotlight essays for our, um, what are we calling it, booklet novella <laughs> on uh, Lillian St. Cyr and the indigenous actress Minnie Devereaux. Charlene Register, um, Black film historian who's written mostly about Black uh, female stars, performers like like Madame Saltuan. Um, she wrote an amazing essay for the booklet on um, uh, Black actresses in early silent film comedy, particularly Bertha Augustus, this woman we see in the film Laughing Gas, where she spreads her laughter contagiously. And Register also uh, contributed to the anti-racism panel. Um, you know, the, the transcript of that conversation is in the booklet. I don't even know where to begin. Check out our WFPP page because it has a full... Um, project credits, in addition to a list of our upcoming screenings, you know, researchers, musicians, uh, participating archives, audio commentators, booklet editors, translators. I mean, like, yeah, I could talk till we're all blue in the face and our interview time has long elapsed. So let me let me yet again pass the baton. I'll just say, well, okay, A, obviously we had a lot of spreadsheets full of people's names and email addresses to uh, keep track of everything. But one thing that's different about our project from some other projects is that we really, uh, for the musicians, wanted to highlight the brilliance of, of women and non-binary and Black, Indigenous, and people of color composers. So um, silent film composing, like film composing more generally, is dominated, as you might guess, by um, white male composers. Um, and so we wanted to do something different. And so this is, uh, I think, in part why we have so many people. So we, we reached out to the women and BIPOC folks who have been doing this work for a long time. Um, like Renee Baker is one uh, person who is both um, advising us and one of the composers. And then we also um, reached out to um, up and coming musicians, some of whom were like students of the composers that we were working with. And so we wanted to have a real variety of um, musicians with different kinds of uh, background, but also different kinds of musical styles and experience and um, instrumentation and things. So you get a wide variety 
of um, of kinds of music. And also we were excited that we could include sometimes two different tracks of music for some films. So you could see what it sounds like with a more traditional, sometimes piano score um, versus a more modern kind of experimental score. Um, And so it's really exciting to see how music shapes your experience of the films by being able to listen to different scores. Um, And I will say too, um, all the archives, we could not have done it without them, both the work that they did to make them available to us and the work they've done all these years to preserve them and keep these films safe. And we did all of this during COVID. We actually got the grants um, in March, 2020, (laughs) you know, so everything shut down and, you know, so we're writing and say, Oh, can we get a copy of this film? And they're like, I don't know. You know, no one really knows. Like everyone's at home and no one knows what's going to happen. And so uh, it was just tremendous to be able to work with so many hundreds of people when uh, during such a difficult time. Alif, do you have anything you want to add or do you feel like your colleagues? Okay. No, yeah, I think everything, a lot of, uh, you know, things uh, are covered. I think for me, what was good about this project, I mean, what makes it so rich, actually, is, of course, I know the part of, you know, working with the archives, getting something on a DVD for release and so on. But, um, you know, the focus on on uh, bringing these unknown films out there and, you know, kind of facilitating all kinds of access, uh, really, like in every uh, kind of setting, like to schools, because we created also like playlists, let's say, or mini programs that people can use rather than, you know, going through everything from A A to Z that they can choose even like thematically, uh, they can make mini programs and we suggest mini programs, but also like facilitating for the Spanish speakers. You know, we collaborate with Fixiliente, uh, this festival in Puebla, in Mexico, that they have provided also like text and explanation and so on for some of the films. I think this is really very rich, you know. It's not only uh, that you say you are committed to bring uh, these films to a big, as big as possible audience, but you actually kind of find allies to help you do that. I think to me that was really interesting. I mean, the same with the anti-racist advisory group. Uh, for me, that was really an enriching experience to, to see like how to handle in a kind of graceful way <laughs> these, these uh, negative, let's say, mm-hmm, sometimes uh, associations with early cinema, which we always you know, you bump upon them, but you sometimes don't know what to do with them. And this is, I think, a good example of what you could do. Yeah. I think that um, um, disturbing racist images from the archive and empowering themes and afterlives of nasty women, as we quickly learned, are inextricable, right? You can't have one without the other. And that was um, part of what we were grappling with in the anti-racism panel. I wanted to quickly follow up on FIC Salente that Alif mentioned, because they're really important project partners for us. Um, they're a silent film collective in Puebla, Mexico, and they um, organize an annual silent film festival, which conveniently overlaps with American Thanksgiving. So if you're looking for an out from your annual family holiday gathering, there's nowhere better to be than Puebla. And they are planning to curate all 14 and a half hours of the collection at an upcoming screening. We, we, the three curators hope to be able to go not this year, but next year. 
um, but they also provided Spanish language audio commentary for a number of films in the collection. They're why we have Spanish subtitles for all of the films, and they're really committed to helping us curate our programs across Latin America, um, in Mexico, but beyond Mexico. So, um, yeah, they, they've been really wonderful project partners to work with. And the festival is directed by um, Enrique Sabalos, Enrique Moreno Sabalos. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that, uh, that extra piece of information for those who want to continue, take it live, take it in, uh, and sort of see these films on a big screen with other people, which is really the way they were originally intended to be shown. Um, well, not maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, I wanted to sort of end where we started about how the archive opens out of the future. Uh, to reiterate the title, sort of or part of the title, that the nasty woman component of your DVD set was inspired by, uh, as you mentioned, Donald Trump's labeling Hillary Clinton a nasty woman in a presidential debate. Uh, and as we all know, he paid for that insult and everything for women has been really good since. So... Great. Um, <laughs> there's the alternative history, maybe. Um, we can pretend. No, but let's not. Let's instead talk about how um, these nasty women really resonate, particularly in the last several years, uh, I would say, with the Trump administration, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, the Me Too and its subsequent backlash, a million different things that have sort of made this question of uh, female resistance um, intersectional forms of female resistance across um, the patriarchy, for lack of a better um, description, which I lack. If I had a better one, I would give it. Um, but I want to think about sort of if the spirit of the nasty woman lives on somewhere in our contemporary media space. And if so, where is she? And will she hang out with me? I think she's on a DVD Blu-ray set that's coming out in December. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why I turned to the archive. I don't think that there are enough ma nasty women in feminist comedy today. And I'm a big fan of a lot of um, contemporary stand-up, like you know, Ali Wong, um, I, and obviously a lot of respect for Hannah Gadsby's work. But I think that the impulse now in feminist comedy is often about taking laughter away from the other's enjoyment. Um, sort of purifying comedy of um, the toxicity of, um, right, its alignment with bigotry, stereotyping racism. And I think that's really important. And that's obviously a big part of what we're committed to doing in our project. But I don't think there are enough um, impulses toward nastiness in feminist popular culture today. Uh, maybe, you know, feel free to disagree with me. But I find um, in terms of comedy, I find nasty women primarily in other genres, like body horror movies that have comedic elements, or maybe in animation, like the cartoon Tuca and Birdie with Ali Wong and Hif Tiffany Haddish comes to mind. But I think a lot of popular comedy, maybe with sketch comedy being a little bit of an outlier, um, um, is not really, uh, has a very different kind of aesthetic and bodily impulse than than the one where the ones were recuperating in this collection. So a lot of feminist comedy is not sufficiently object, abject, I would say, like by that understanding that there's a kind of like grotesquerie, there's a destructiveness of these mm -hmm. nasty women that maybe contemporary forms of movies, TV, social media doesn't really allow or doesn't make a space for. 
Yeah, I mean, I was trying to find TikTok videos that were, you know, comedic and involved women breaking dishes or destroying their kitchen. And I couldn't because they're all about like the in-joke, the hashtag, what meme is being referenced, what the social media filter is doing. And a lot of them I just didn't get. And you know, why? I, I mean, listeners, if anyone's still listening and you have TikTok videos of women breaking dishes to kind of slapstick comedic effect, please send them to me. I'd love to be wrong about this. I will say we uh, invited Melissa McCarthy to do a video because she's so similar to Sarah Duhamel. So there's like really a kind of resonance there, um, but she never got back to us. <laughs> I have to say, I, when I was trying to think of contemporary ones, the the bridal salon scene in Bridesmaids does come to mind. But I feel like there's been so much disappointing comedy from since then sort of that feels like it was um that it sprung from bridesmaids that i feel it's a little tainted honestly um in terms of just like that that was pretty wild it felt really wild but now it feels like nothing (laughs) yeah i will i will say also like on the gender on the gender side Mm -hmm. like back in the silence period basically every woman comedian not woman comedian sort of woman actor would play some like gender disguise roles it was so common there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and now you think like like that is so different from now mm-hmm. you know there's um really the the range of kinds of roles for women i think has drastically contrasted from the silent era to today now i'm on the other hand you do have you know incredible openly trans openly queer and butch women um making films you know directing directing their own films writing their own stories so you have um this and especially some of my research is about um, trans filmmakers. I'm creating something called the Transgender Media Portal, which is meant to be like an IMDb for trans filmmakers and their films, because, you know, we think, oh, how many are there? There's actually thousands. And in fact, um, trans people have been making films and circulating them in film festivals since the 90s. I mean, they've been making them for far longer, but there's been a huge scene, but it's often ignored by not just critics and the public, but also even film scholars. So um, this is a very exciting time. And the last few decades have been really a time of like an explosion of incredible openly trans filmmakers. So I do think um, that's an exciting thing that we have people kind of taking the camera, you know, for themselves, telling interesting stories that are way more complex. Also comedies, you know, all kinds of comedies um, than just what you get made by, um, you know, cis filmmakers like The Danish Girl or Transamerica or Mm. even The Crying Game or something. So um, I do think that it's an exciting time for for trans filmmaking. Yeah, I was thinking also like more generally in the larger sense of cinema, cinema industry even, uh, like who are the nasty women. And I think, you know, the nasty women are those who refuse to wear the high heels to the con gala kind of thing, you know, <laughs> because basically that's the spirit, no, of refusing to conform to this thing, whatever it is, to this look or so that is requested from you. And it's still today, it's kind of shocking, but it's hard to believe. But like, this is a discussion, like that, that, that people are discussing this like oh can you actually not wear high heels to a Khan gala i mean what the hell is this about i don't think soretu hamel would give <laughs> really come on i mean like so, that, so i think that's what i'm trying to find like that that spirit of 
what they are doing, how they see themselves. You know, it's it's just like, of course, we were, we could also say in the earlier days, like we were saying, they didn't think they were making art or whatever, anything to last. So probably they were taking themselves not too seriously either. And therefore, they would also very easily renounce to other people's idea of what they should be doing. Uh, I mean, we really see them being quite assertive also in this off screen like very few moments if you have a picture or something during the the shoes yeah they're, they're really there it's not like they would go and shut themselves in the trailer or something because it's not their scene because these people are just around and they're all part of making that film and i'm kind of looking for that kind of characters really but i think you know, like Daria Argento, all these women who are basically being refused to, you know, shut down and like, like they, 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 they are just like speaking up how inconvenient, you know, for lots of other people. I think this is the spirit anyway, and whether it's on screen or off screen, I don't know. It's it's just like the cinema is a bigger, uh, bigger thing. I, yeah. I just thought of a film that I think does embody the spirit of nasty women, The People's Joker, this film that was yeah. just pulled from TIFF by a Good trans woman. It. Yeah, exactly. Good luck seeing it. Vera Drew, um, who made a horror film previously. Uh, we're all going to the World's Fair. And she wrote, directed, and starred. It was fan-financed. Um, uh, a film where she plays uh, a kind a, a vision a version of the DC Joker um, who and who fights a kind of fascist vigilante and um, and the film was pulled after one screening at the Toronto International Film Festival because of rights issues and so now it's being suppressed but I feel like everything about this project from start to finish is like the the spirit of cinemas first nasty women and so it's some of uh yeah cinema's latest nasty women and uh let's hope that somehow or another this film makes it out to people since right now the the man is trying to crush it maybe in a century it will come out on blu-ray <laughs> that's a, that i'm that sounds like a, a really cool movie i'm really disappointed that it's being held up but hopefully they'll figure it out it's so i mean it's so weird to me that like if we think about what where this this nasty woman man, moniker came from, I think it came from Hillary Clinton just saying something, like saying something true or fact checking something. Um, so I think you, I agree that there isn't this kind of anarchic sort of expression, particularly not in mainstream sort of media anymore but i wonder if we can find more of it if we open it up to like uh women who are willing to make people feel bad like or are willing to embarrass um other people i've been re-watching um i was just re-watching cecily strong's abortion clown sketch and i was thinking mm. about it just this morning it's not particularly wild or anarchic but there is a kind of ugliness there that is um you know unapologetically so uh, but i think that if you really want to see women burn it down, I th you have to watch this. You have to watch <laughs> Lantine. I um, agree. I and agree. if you um, want to understand kind of like the tensions between sort of feminism and other struggles for civil rights, you also need to be watching these films uh, with all of the feelings that they provoke. So in our final moments, when does this come out? Where can we get it? 
who in your family would most appreciate this as a holiday gift? And um, this isn't a question, but libraries, institutions can also purchase their own copies from Kino Lorber. But let's do our final push, our final plug for this be- this beautiful collection. Yeah, it's coming out December 20th. 99 films, 14 and a half hours of mayhem. You can purchase it on DVD or Blu-ray. And the Blu-ray version comes with a beautiful print booklet, which will also be open access online for everyone to read and enjoy from Kino Lorber's website. Uh, Check out our Women Film Pioneer Project webpage because we keep an updated list of all of our upcoming screenings. We have screenings coming up in the next couple months at the Cinema Museum in London. We have a screening in Finland, uh, Minneapolis, Tacoma, Washington, Burlington, Vermont. And... um, if you have if you if you have a local rep theater that you really enjoy and you want to bring one of our uh, touring DCP programs, Queens of Destruction, Doubles and Doppelgangers, or Gender Adventures to the big screen in your neighborhood, please contact us. You know we're very uh, we're, we're at Nasty Silence. That's S I L E N T S on social media, so you can message us on Twitter or Facebook. But yeah, I I think your suggestion, Annie, of Cinema's First Nasty Women as the perfect holiday gift is really spot on. I'll also say the DVD is region free, so you can watch it anywhere in the world. And you can only order it from Kino's website if you're in the US or Canada, but you should be able to buy it from other websites all around the world shipped to you directly. So um, anyone who's listening to this, no matter where you are, you should be able to get Nasty Women. And it may be that you need to buy both the Blu-ray set and a Blu-ray player for that special person in your life, but we really recommend it because it's clear that streaming uh, things, you know, they disappear as quickly as they appear. But if you buy the DVD and you keep it, you know, dry and in good condition, you'll have it for the next hundred years. Physical media lasts a lot longer than what's ever streaming in, you know, the HBO Plus library. Um, And and just to the point of libraries and institutions, because Annie, you mentioned that you can also purchase streaming rights to show the DVD and Blu-ray from kino.edu. But there are also um, online versions of our programming that your library can license, like if you just want to program, you know, like the 80 minute um, Queens of Destruction program and integrate that to your syllabus, check out kino.edu. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for coordinating with me so that we could all be together uh, to talk about this uh, Cinema's First Nasty Women from Kino Lorber. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Elise. Uh, And thank you, listeners. This has been New Books in Film.